Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Susan Hyde, Assistant Professor of Political Science and International Studies at Yale University. Professor Hyde's research interests include international influences on domestic politics, elections in developing countries, international norm creation, and the use of natural and field experimental research methods. Her current research explores the effects of international democracy promotion efforts with a particular focus on international election observation. She has served as an international observer with the Carter Center and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe for elections in Albania, Indonesia, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, and has also worked for the democracy program at the Carter Center. Today we'll be talking with her about her newest endeavor, the Pseudo-Democrats Dilemma, why election monitoring became an international norm. Welcome, Professor Hyde. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the premise of your book. Uh, so when describing the project, I like to describe the puzzle that I began with. Okay. And that is that I noticed that a number of leaders throughout the world were inviting international election monitors and then committing large-scale election fraud in front of them. Wow. And so the book was motivated by um, my interest in that phenomenon and trying to explain it. Um, but really what the book has become about is uh, why election monitoring became an international norm. Okay. Uh, the, the term pseudo-democrat, mm -hmm. um, is that something you've coined? Yeah. And uh, what actually is it? I, I, don't I don't think I can claim making okay. up the term. Um, there's a lot of uh, ways in which uh, leaders in the, in the developing world are described, but I use it in the sense that um, pseudo-democrats are leaders who are willing to hold elections. Um, their governments are willing to hold elections, maybe even willing to hold democratic elections, but what they're not willing to do is lose and peacefully transfer power to, to another party. So uh, they're the types of governments throughout the world that engage in, in election manipulation. Sometimes they engage in what I call strategic manipulation, in which they're trying to steal the elections but not get caught. Okay. Uh, and they're uh, uh, very interesting leaders to study, I would say. There are uh, lots of good stories about them. Okay. One of the contributions of your book is your theory of international norm creation. Tell us about it. Okay, so it again was developed to explain election monitoring, but I now think that it applies to other types of international norms. Okay. Um, I think one way to look at international politics is to divide the world into states that are viewed as good types of states and states that are viewed as bad types of states. Mm -hmm. um, and my theory basically looks at what happens when the preferences of powerful states change in regard to what types of states they prefer to, to work with. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in the 1960s and then really at the end of the Cold War in the late 1980s, um, many powerful states began promoting democracy with, with, uh, and, and expressing their preference to work with other democratic states. Um, states throughout the developing world responded to this by inviting election monitors. I think they could have done mm -hmm. a lot of other things, but they, they happened to start doing this. And these were, these were governments that were actually democratizing, that were looking for a way to signal their mm -hmm type that they were one of the good governments committed to democracy uh, to international audiences. Um, and it, it became a perception that all good types 
invited election monitors, um, which meant that if, if you weren't inviting international election monitors, you must be a bad type, mm -hmm. uh, which, which is why I think the behavior of inviting international election monitors spread to even those governments that are holding fraudulent elections. Okay, so it's kind of... Um, <laughs> it's pretty it's, dynamic. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk some specifics okay. about the, the countries that you have observed. So my project focuses on the global diffusion of election monitoring, okay. so it's throughout the entire world. But I personally have the, had the opportunity to travel to, um, to five different countries mm -hmm. to serve as an election monitor with three different groups. Um, and so the first, one, first place I went was Venezuela mm -hmm. uh, during the recall referendum for Hugo Chavez. And um, the most recent place that I went to is Pakistan for the 2008 um, elections there. Well, that must have been <laughs> fascinating. Um, talk a little bit, give mm -hmm. us some highlights of what that was like. Well, the, that particular case was interesting um, in part because the security situation was somewhat tenuous. So mm -hmm. uh, we weren't really allowed to observe in a lot of the places that I think many people in the delegation would have liked to have gone mm -hmm. to. But um, it, one of the remarkable things about the election is that despite all of the complaints and the pre-election violence and the complaints that many of the parties had about the preparations for the election, uh, the opposition actually won. Mm -hmm. um, and this surprised everyone at, at the time. Uh, and it, it, it raises a lot of questions about, you know, how much do, does election manipulation or election violence matter um, if the opposition party is able to win anyway? Mm -hmm. um, okay. Um, let's um, <laughs> uh, talk a little bit about the methodology you used in the book. How did you okay. gather the data? So I uh, like to call my approach, uh, as do many people in political science right now, a multi-method approach. So okay. I have the uh, picture of election monitoring since it was first initiated in sovereign states in the early 1960s until the present. Mm -hmm. um, but I also use a, a variety of other methods, including field experimental methods, and uh, there's a natural experiment as well. And mm -hmm. so what that means, um, I, I guess I should back up a little bit and just say, rather than talking just about the methods, one of the important parts of my theory is that election monitoring has to be costly to the governments that invite election monitors and try to steal the elections. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't matter to them, then my whole theory falls apart and it doesn't work very well. So I, very early on, I became interested in figuring out how you could prove that election monitors matter to governments that are cheating. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way that um, I sort of stumbled upon was to look at micro-level variation in the performance of the cheating candidates mm -hmm. relative to whether international observers were there monitoring the polling stations or not. And okay. so the first case was that I looked at in this way was actually a natural experiment. Um, and what that means is that the, in this case, is that the assignment of observers to polling stations was close to random. Mm -hmm. So everything else can be virtually held constant. And you can just compare the group of polling stations that was monitored with those that weren't. And in this case, the incumbent did 6% worse in the monitored polling stations than in the unmonitored polling stations, implying that uh, he got 6% less uh, or fewer votes than he otherwise would have gotten had he been allowed to, or had he not been internationally monitored in those polling stations. Okay, and what are you <laughs> doing when you're, when you're actually observing? What oh. does that entail? Yeah, so it's, I think it's maybe less interesting than it sounds at first, but um, there's, there's a variety of types of election monitoring, mm -hmm. but what I have done primarily is short-term election monitoring, which is mostly around election day. Mm -hmm. um, and then I come in with a bunch of other people uh, a few days before the election, mm -hmm. 
um, become, get a sort of crash course in the um, procedures that are supposed to be happening in that election in that particular country in that mm -hmm. particular day, problems that have already happened, um, issues to be looking out for, that sort of thing. So a very intensive training period. Um, then you're given your assignment mm -hmm. um, and deployed somewhere in the country. So they try to deploy election monitors throughout, throughout uh, the country that that's being observed. And um, then during the day before um, election day, you meet with a lot of party officials mm -hmm. and uh, um, election officials, police, whoever is in the community that, that might have a, a stake in, in the election, see so mm -hmm. me with them the day before. On election day, you basically just go from polling station to polling station with a clipboard, um, ask talking to people, uh, filling out a questionnaire mm -hmm. uh, that's you know specific to that country, are the procedures that are supposed to be taking place actually taking place, uh -huh. and then um, you call in your findings periodically. Mm -hmm. uh, if there's any major problems, you're supposed to stay longer and, and document it. You spend a lot of time talking to voters uh, to see if anything unusual has happened mm -hmm. to them, um, trying, uh, again, to document things that, that are reported to you. Um, and then uh, usually you, you end up watching the counting of the votes, which mm -hmm. can be sometimes interesting, sometimes quite long and boring mm -hmm. <laughs> of a process. Uh, and then you sometimes will follow the, the ballots through another stage of aggregation. Mm -hmm. So okay. they're carried up to another level and you again watch the tabulation process okay. there. Have you been in any countries, have you observed um, any elections where there has been fraud and how can you, how do you tell that <laughs> the fraud has been committed? So I haven't seen very much overt fraud with my uh -huh. own eyes. Um, a lot of election monitor reports, I mean, most of them don't say this election was fraudulent, this election was free and fair. Mm -hmm. They're much more nuanced. And so, for example, in Albania, I didn't see a woman cast her own ballot until well after noon. Mm -hmm. um, and that was because they have a, a common practice there of family voting where the head of the household, who's always a man, stands in the polling place and casts a ballot for every member of his extended oh family. Boy. And so it's not, I mean, it's, it, it's a traditional practice, mm -hmm. um, and, but it's not consistent with uh, having a secret ballot sure. and, and a democratic election in that sense. So it wasn't a very big deal. I mean, the election overall was, it was otherwise pretty good, um, but this is a, a practice that, that people were quite concerned with. Venezuela, things are very tense there. Uh, mm -hmm. You spend a lot of time getting yelled at as an international observer in, oh in Venezuela by both sides equally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but you know, again, you see things that are, you, you hear a lot more complaints than you actually see. Mm -hmm. So you know, so and so um, says that they tried to vote and they were told that they're actually deceased, and okay. so and so. <laughs> you know, there's a million yeah. stories like that, mm -hmm. um, and that are that are harder to document. Okay, um, in your book. Um, you reach certain conclusions. Um, mm -hmm. Talk about some of them. Well, uh, one of my main conclusions, I guess a more general conclusion, um, is that uh, is related to democracy promotion. Mm -hmm. So a lot of um, the talk about democracy promotion is, is very critical in that uh, democracy promotion is inconsistent. For example, U.S. democracy promotion, we continue to support mm -hmm. um, dictatorships, so therefore democracy promotion policy must be hypocritical or something right. like that. And what my project highlights is that um, that even when other interests are at stake for governments promoting democracy, um, that some some support for, for democracy can have uh, some unintended effects and give governments the incentive to try to at least act like <laughs> democracies, if not mm -hmm. actually become, become democratic. Um, it also, uh, in, in terms of international monitoring, so this has come up recently in relation to 
um, weapons inspection, right? Mm -hmm. So the types of governments that are, uh, there's two different states of the world, one in which if you refuse to allow inspectors in for weapons inspection or for international election monitors, you're assumed to be guilty mm -hmm. um, because we expect that governments that have nothing to hide will let in, let in monitors. Sure. Um, and uh, I, I think an, an interesting part of my, an implication of my book is that um, the reason why election monitoring was allowed to get to that state in which if you don't invite election monitors, you're assumed to be doing something bad uh, was in part because election monitoring isn't perfect. Mm -hmm. So the pseudo-democrats could potentially fool international observers and get uh, a positive report for their elections. Mm -hmm. Had that not happened, had that not been possible, had election monitoring been perfect from the beginning, um, my opinion, and this is harder to prove, but my opinion is that um, the, the state leaders who are committing election fraud just would have said, we are a sovereign state, we refuse to invite election monitors. There would have been nothing in it for them to invite mm -hmm. external scrutiny. And I think the same dynamic applies across a lot of issue areas in which there is some type of monitoring or enforcement regime. Okay, final question. <laughs> what uh, was the most surprising thing for you in researching and writing the book? I think uh, I think it's the most surprising thing, but definitely one of the more fun things is all of the methods that governments use to steal elections. Uh -huh. So I've had a good time just documenting uh, all of the the ways in which they've been caught trying to steal elections. Usually, what I can find out about are the the, the governments that are bad at stealing elections because mm -hmm. they're the ones who get caught. I think there's probably a number of governments out there who are who are actually good at concealing election mm -hmm. manipulation and, and therefore don't get caught. But I guess the other surprising side of this is that, and that political scientists tend to assume, um, assume away and they don't look at it as an interesting question, is mm -hmm. that it's actually quite hard to steal an election. And it's even harder to steal an election and not get caught. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of ways in which that can go wrong. Um, and we've seen, that we see this over and over again. So the, the again, to bring up, uh, the Iranians, the mm -hmm. most recent Iranian election, I think was a really interesting um, case of this in which uh, by the end of, of ele the election day, people were pretty sure that something had gone wrong, um, although I think the government came, came pretty close to being able to get away with, mm -hmm. with election manipulation. Okay, very interesting. <laughs> Thank you very much for being here with us today and sharing some of your research. Thank you for having me. For more information about Professor Hyde and her work, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.